Let's open God's Word together now as we prepare for its reading and its preaching. If you would please turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. We missed an opportunity to stand earlier while singing, but we won't miss that opportunity now. If you would, please stand. Uh, We do this uh, as a matter of habit, simply to express our reverence for God's written word. For elsewhere in Scripture, we're reminded that the grass withers and flowers will fade away, but the word of the living God will endure forever. So we strive to hear and heed it faithfully together. Let's hear God's word this morning, Nehemiah 8, verses 1 through 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattitiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Pediah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces toward the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This for the reading of the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, you are a clear communicator. We are not always so good at listening and understanding. And so we ask now that your Spirit would do what the Spirit alone can do. Open our hearts wide to receive the ministry of your Word. Help us not simply to understand it, but to also believe it. Help us not simply believe it, but to rightly practice it in our lives. All this we ask for the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with thankfulness for the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Throughout history, Reformed people have always been lovers of the Word of God and the Word of God being preached, except for when they're not. John Calvin, as many of you know, a faithful uh, Reformed father in the faith and an expositor of God's Word, was committed to a method of preaching that we cherish here and that uh, you know pretty well, even if you don't recognize the name of it. We call it expository preaching. And included with that is the idea of going verse by verse through books of the Bible. Well, sometimes Reformed people love preaching, and sometimes they don't uh, quite as much. In the spring 
1538, Calvin was actually ousted from his pulpit there in Geneva on Easter Sunday of all Sundays. Uh, They not only kicked him out of the church, they kicked him out of the town. Three years later, the city of Geneva had descended into unambiguous turmoil, and the same council that voted Calvin out in a hurry voted him back in a similar hurry. Calvin returned in just over three years in September of 1541, and guess what he did? He picked up exactly where he left off with the very next verse of the very same book. Well, this morning we look at, in many ways, the source of what we call expository preaching, at least in some ways, as we find it in Nehemiah chapter 8, a really great chapter as a whole uh, with an awful lot that we can benefit from. This morning we'll attempt to do that, uh, leaning on the outline that you have there in your bulletin. And let's consider together now the first point, the priority of God's word. We come at this point in the middle of the book of Nehemiah uh, to, in many ways, a remarkable transition. If you take a few steps back and zoom out, uh, you can see the transition rather clearly. The wall is now completed, and in many ways, the work that Nehemiah came to do has been accomplished. Not only is the wall completed, very importantly, as you see in the last verse of the previous chapter, the people of Israel have come home. They are once again settled in their towns. Uh, There is an obvious note of thankfulness. And what would you imagine would happen next? After all the work, people have come back as exiles. They've rebuilt the temple. They have uh, rebuilt the city walls and finished everything. Well, what you might imagine is that'd be time for a break. Time to put your feet up. Time to find a comfortable chair and rest a little bit. And actually, when you pause and think about it, after all this work rebuilding the wall, after all this travel, everyone knows that moving is exhausting, a break would be in order, but no such break is found. Notice that there is no gap between the completion of the wall in chapter 7 and Israel being resettled in their towns, and Israel now gathering in chapter 8 for the reading of God's word. In fact, the way that they do so is described in lovely language, In verse 1, and the people, all the people, gathered as one man. It's an expression of unity. It's an expression of solidarity. It is something only the ministry of God's word can accomplish. And once again, uh, we find that this takes place in the seventh month, the month of Tishri, what would be September or October in our calendar. It's a beautiful time of year. It's a beautiful time to be outside. It's a wonderful time of year to stand outside for six hours straight with what appear to be men, women, and children uh, who gather together as one man before the water gate to stand there for apparently six hours long to hear the word of God. Now, you can be thankful that we imitate a lot of things that we see in the Bible. And perhaps you're equally thankful that we don't imitate them all. Here's Nehemiah, who in many ways stands behind uh, this plan. Uh, This is an important moment in the life of Nehemiah, even as regards Nehemiah in the book that is named after this man of God. And the reason why it's important is because in a certain sense, uh, not entirely, but in some ways, Nehemiah is about to fade to the background. Nehemiah, in a certain sense now at this moment, uh, becomes to Ezra kind of like what Bilbo Baggins is to Frodo, a fading character, 
one who makes room for another to take his place. A man who recognizes that his time has come and his time to fade away. From here to the end of the book of Nehemiah, we will only hear Nehemiah's name four more times, though he certainly has a speaking role in the book. But you might say it like this in an Old Testament way, Nehemiah must decrease and Ezra must increase. But the accent does not fall upon even Ezra the man. In fact, in many ways, uh, this is what we want to attempt to showcase, is that no man, neither Nehemiah nor Ezra, really get center stage and the prominence. It is rather, and importantly, the word of God that is the center of our story and that stands upon center stage. Nehemiah's role in the book thus far has been to rebuild the wall and finally to redistribute the people into their towns. Nehemiah is the governor of the town, but Ezra, we are told, is both a scribe and a priest. And so the chapter begins by saying that they, likely Nehemiah and the town officials, call for Ezra to come and to bring the word. And notice how that word is described. The book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. This is what we would call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Israel, right now, coming out of their towns to assemble around the Word of God, in many ways, uh, resembles another moment in Israel's history, where once again, Israel had come out and gathered around the Word. But there, it was at the time of the Exodus. There also, the people of God had been delivered And they gathered around the word. And this is exactly what you see happening here. Israel is back. They have been brought back from exile rather than Egypt. They have been established in their towns. And they gather together as one man around the five books of Moses. Now, just a very brief reflection on those books uh, underscores how important they were for the people of God. And particularly at that moment in time. The five books of Moses that we call the Pentateuch establish our doctrine of God. They tell us who God is. They tell us that God is our creator, that he is our king, that he is our deliverer, and even our friend. They tell us that he is the God who not only made covenant, but the God who also keeps it. They tell us that God is the one who delivered us, a lesson that Israel will often forget in its history. That God had delivered Israel not simply once, but even now again, and he would be the deliverer of his people in the future. Not only is he their savior, he is also their commander. For the five books of Moses tell about the story of God redeeming his people, but also the fact that he gives commands. Something that Israel, like us, was often prone to forget. He is the one who guides them in their life. He is the one who keeps them as they go. He is the one who tells them how they ought to live day by day in thought, in word, and in deed. In a certain manner of speaking, one might say that the universe began when God preached. God preached, and it came to be. God spoke, and things that formerly did not exist all of a sudden did. God spoke, and man was created in his image. God spoke, and man found his place In the world, God spoke, and all of a sudden, there was man standing, as it were, quorum Deo, before the face of God. St. Augustine, remember, St. Augustine is in heaven. St. Augustine is on the other side of the continent. St. Augustine said, very helpfully in this context, You have formed us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. 
Israel, on the one hand, was once again tasting the sweetness of God's rest, for they were settled again back in their homes, no longer in exile. And yet, their hearts were restless. As they had been in the past, they could prove to be again in the future. And only by rightly understanding who God was as their creator, their redeemer, their covenant commander, and their friend, could Israel know her place in this world. So in many ways, uh, there was something that the people of God needed even more than a break, even more than physical rest. You might say it like this, their feet had found their way back to Jerusalem, but their hearts were still prone to wander. The idols of the land were all around them. The idols of comfort and ease were now readily before them. The exile was over, but the sad lesson of history was it could happen again. So what did the people of God need now that they had their land back, their homes back, their towns back, their temple back, and their city walls? What they needed was the word of God. And only did they need it, they needed it quickly. So this is what Nehemiah under the direction of God's Spirit, is up to. He is a man of conviction, a man who's convicted that the people of God desperately needed then what you and I continue to need even now and day by day, and that is the ministry of the Word of God. That is the priority of God's Word. But it takes us then to our second point, the proclamation of God's Word. The contents chapter is highly instructive in a lot of ways. From it, many people, uh, many preachers and teachers of preaching draw their understanding, not only of preaching, but in some ways even of church architecture. Uh, From here we learn much about preachers and preaching. Ezra is not only a scribe, he's also called a priest. It's interesting he's given both titles in the same chapter. He is given here a holy task when he is summoned by Nehemiah and the town officials to come and to proclaim the word. And we might think of another passage of Scripture in Romans 10 that says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I think it's a figure of speech, because feet really aren't pretty. But either way, here come Ezra and 13 men climbing up onto a podium to proclaim the word of God for 13 hours from morning to the middle. Not 13 hours, 6 hours, 13 men from morning until the middle of the day. In many ways, uh, this is the origin of a preaching pulpit. This thing right here uh, comes in many ways, arguably, from what you see here in Ezra chapter 8. The word for it is also a word that can be used for something like a tower. It's an elevated point from which not only uh, that tower could look and see, but the tower could be seen as well. It was made of wood, And it was elevated, and very importantly here, it was elevated above the people, but for one simple purpose, not to elevate the man, not to elevate the servant that was sent, but simply to elevate the word and the one who had sent it. Now, if you follow the details, it appears that not only did the people stand for nearly six hours but that there were thousands of thousands upon people who were gathered here that day. Imagine, thousands of people. This is, when have you seen something like that? Woodstock? This is insanity. 
Thousands and thousands of people uh, gathered together, and Ezra and 13 others are elevated on this tower-like uh, pulpit. You can understand why he needed to be elevated, uh, even with a bellowing voice like that that Spurgeon supposedly had. Uh, one would still need to be elevated and would even need help. That's why the 13 men are there. They apparently take turns with Ezra. Ezra does the majority of the reading, but not all of it. It is the word of God that we see here lifted up. It is the word of God that is given the primacy of place. It is the word of God that God wants his people to hear. And they take turns reading it for virtually six hours. Notice, I said six hours. And notice verse 5, all the people stood. What do you think about that? That was just the reading, not the preaching. Aren't you thankful we don't imitate everything we see in the Bible? Perhaps here we should uh, have a qualification or two. Yes, uh, we don't imitate everything that we read. And as you've heard before from me and from others, not everything that is described in the Bible is prescribed in the Bible. But we do stand for the reading of the Word. And we did that just a little while ago. Uh, There's not a Bible verse that says, Thou shalt or must. Uh, But it is a custom that you find in churches and even here in Scripture itself where we stand to separate the word of God from the word of the servant that comes to proclaim it. But thankfully, again, we did not stand for six hours. If I have understood correctly, this would be the place in the Bible where the Bible itself is read for the longest amount of time. Again, six hours if you can imagine such a thing. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is the longest sermon, and it all by itself is just over an hour. How many times have you heard an over one hour sermon? Probably not many. How many times have you had to stand for even one hour, let alone six? Well, last week actually got kind of close, didn't it? But you can see here uh, the point that there are some things in the Bible that we actually do and imitate, and there are other things that we simply recognize but do not imitate. Ezra here had help from these 13 men that are likely there not only to take turns with him in the reading, but then after a little break, if you go down further in the chapter, uh, there are another 13 that come alongside to help with translation and application. And this is the second thing I want to draw at this point is something uh, very important, and that is the importance of the people of God understanding and rightly applying the Word of God. Bound with the idea of proclamation is understanding and faithful application. These are exiles who have now just come back from Babylon. Some spoke Hebrew, but many spoke Aramaic, which becomes a frustration to Nehemiah later in the book. The 13 on the platform helped with reading, but again, the other 13 listed in verse 7 helped the people to understand it. And the very idea of understanding is key. The very idea of understanding is key. Verse 2, 3, 7, and 8 all use this language. It describes in verse 2 the people who came, all who could understand what they heard. Uh, Some try to make an argument out of this verse that small children uh, were not there and therefore uh, should not be in church. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. But the point of understanding is appreciated. In verse 3 it comes again. They're describing, as was reading it, to all who could understand. Once more, in verse 7, the other 13 help 
Ezra, help the people to not only understand it, but to apply it to their lives. And finally, in verse 8, something of a summary of the whole section is given, in many ways, the ministry of the word itself. I want to read it now. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Uh, Therein lies every preacher's aim and the burden of every drive home after a Sunday morning. How clear was that sermon? How rightly understood was that sermon? How rightly appreciated and applied was the sense of it? Uh, Many, perhaps squeeze almost almost, uh, too much out of verse 8 when it comes to describing and defining expository preaching. But for what it's worth, you can't miss the fact that the word was read and that there is a real striving to make sure that the word was read clearly and that the people understood it. They got the sense, the summary of what those words meant. The final word understand has uh, the idea of something more than simply intellectual understanding. It, It suggests, perhaps better put, Understanding with application. This is really what Ezra was after, what Nehemiah was after, what God is after is people hear his word. Not simply an intellectual understanding, but an understanding that comes along with application. To say it differently, a matter of both head as well as heart. And whether successful or not, I'm certainly mindful of those two distinctions, uh, preaching strives to be clear, it strives to be accessible, and it strives to be applicable. This is every preacher's goal, and yes, they often fail. What's one of the best things that could be said after a sermon? Well, one of the best things that could be said is that Christ was exalted, that God received all the glory, but arguably uh, it could be said that after a sermon, it'd be nice to hear that the text was made clear, This is what they used to call light. And that the text was well applied to the heart. This is what they would call heat. Light and heat is what every sermon strives to bring. Light to the word to make it clearly understood. And heat to the heart that it might warm and transform the soul. This is a key point for Reformed Christians. I want you to pause and think about what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 8, and contrast it to the time of the Reformation. If Nehemiah has people there, not simply reading the word, but burdened to make sure that that word is translated into a language that the people could understand, and then the people there standing and listening have additional assistance to come help them to make sure that that word is rightly understood and then rightly applied to their life. Well, if you were alive and a churchgoer in the 1500s and you went to church, uh, it it would be literally a foreign experience. You would go, and if your native language was German or Dutch or English, whatever it might happen to be, uh, there you would hear the Bible read in Latin, which virtually no one spoke. Certainly not the common people, only the priests. And yes, the Bible was there and it was read and it was sung, but it was sung in a language that you did not understand. How helpful would that be? I know sometimes I'm a little bit vague and unclear, but at least I'm speaking English. I hope. And not only would they hear the Bible read and sung in a foreign language, which only the priests uh, would know. Then after that came what we call the Lord's Supper and they call the Mass. But guess who took it? Only the priests. And the people sat there 
and watched. It's the polar opposite of what you see in Nehemiah chapter 8. And it's one of the main reasons why there was such a rally cry for the Reformation itself. That the word of God would be accessible to the people of God, not in a foreign language. That the means of grace that God had appointed for his people would be accessible to all the people of God who had faith, not simply the priest. And this becomes uh, so clearly embodied even in our Reformed standards that insist upon the Bible being translated into this not-so-flattering phrase, into the vulgar tongue of the people. That the people of God would hear the Bible in their own language. One of the great kindnesses of God's providence in history is think about how many different languages the Bible has been translated into. Well, where does that come from? Nehemiah chapter 8. The desire that God's people would hear God's word in a language that they could understand. But then the point of what is to be understood is also worthy of summarizing. The Shorter Catechism teaches us, and we read from it this morning, uh, what the scriptures principally teach. And what is that? Uh, What we are to believe concerning the word of God and the duty God requires of man. In a certain sense, that is the sermon outlined for every sermon. What should we believe concerning God? And what duty, by way of this text, does God require of man? That's exactly what the people were given in Nehemiah chapter 8. That's what it meant for them to understand, not simply the words, but rather the theology behind the words, what it taught them about God, and what it taught them about the duty that God expected from his people. This is what we mean by expository preaching. What does the text say, and how do we rightly apply it to our lives, and often doing that in a verse-by-verse matter. So if we've looked at the priority of God's word, and then the manner of its being proclaimed, let's look finally at the people. Earlier, as I prayed, if you were paying attention, a phrase I used to describe the people of God was the people of the book. That is a nickname that Christians have been given of in history. We've always been perceived as a little bit nerdy. Book lovers, bookworms, people of a book, People of the book. But when you think about it, it's actually a a wonderful phrase. It says that the people of God have ultimately one thing in common, and that is the word of God. It says, even as you see at the beginning of this chapter, uh, that though there might be many things that divide people when God's word is proclaimed, it has a way of unifying, calling people out of their towns, calling people to come and assemble in one place, calling them to be willing even to stand at times for hours under the ministry of the word, calling them to listen as one man. The details of the text reveal to us that the meeting before us in Ezra chapter 8 was not something that came together on the fly, but rather was planned. The wooden platform upon which Ezra and 13 men would stand, this elevated tower that becomes uh, the foundation of evangelical pulpits, all of this would have taken time to do. They couldn't have just thrown that together in the morning. Even the time necessary for people to travel from their towns and to come and to be prepared to stand for that long. Nehemiah had planned for this meeting. Ezra was likely involved in the plan of this meeting, and the people of God traveled some distance to get there. And There's a point behind this. And the point is, uh, the people of God prepared for the ministry of the Word of God. In fact, everyone described in Ezra chapter 8 not only sat or stood under the ministry of the Word, in one fashion or another, they actually prepared for it. 
And I would admit, I imagine you might as well, that many of us feel the reality that one of our biggest failures as Christians is that we don't actually prepare much for the ministry of God's Word. If you think uh, balking at six hours of standing is understandable, uh, you might find sympathy around the room. But how about simply preparing for the sermon coming the following week? If I were to acknowledge, honestly, I would suggest that one of my biggest failures as a pastor, as a dad, as a Christian, is not preparing enough for the ministry of God's Word. And my guess is I'm in good company. That we all need to spend more time preparing for the ministry of God's Word. Uh, you're not asked to come and stand for six hours. And you've, and you've never endured a sermon as long as that of the book of Hebrews, at least not to my knowledge. Uh, but, but do we prepare at all for the short sermon that we hear every week? And you get to sit. And you only stand for a few minutes of reading. Uh, do we take time to read the text? You have it a whole week in advance. You already know today what I'm preaching on next week. So do I. Do we pray for it and over it? Not only on our own, but perhaps with our families. It's something I'm convicted I need to do more of. And uh, do you pray for the very imperfect men like Ezra, Nehemiah, and pastors that stand to proclaim the word? Do you know why Ezra had 13 men standing there? Because he needed help. Preachers are weak. They're a long ways from perfect. But preparing for the ministry of God's word is not just what the servant that is sent does. In Ezra chapter 8, it's what the people of God do. And note the posture of them. Uh, At one point, we see them standing, yes, for six hours. But I want to point out some other things that are actually kind of intriguing. Uh, The text describes multiple different postures or body languages embodied by the people of God. Standing is simply one of them. At another point, you see the people of God lifting up their hands like this. And, And if you should happen to see somebody do that in church, don't tackle them. It's 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 not bad. Uh, many do. What is it? What does it symbolize? Well, it symbolizes at it, at its best, and as it's described here in the Word of God, uh, that the people were lifting up their hands as though to receive. When my youngest wants affection, this is how she says it. That's asking for a hug. When the people of God sometimes come to God in prayer, even at the end of a service, you'll sometimes see during the benediction, people with their hands in that posture. There's nothing wrong with that. It's embodied in the Bible. It's okay. It's also okay if you don't do it. But here in Ezra 8, excuse me, Nehemiah 8, you see people doing it. And finally, not only do you see them standing and then lifting up uh, their hands at one point, but you also see them bowing their heads and worshiping. And perhaps uh, this is the heart of the text in a certain sense as it Display is not simply the heart of the people, but, but really the heart of God. This is a sign of humility. Those who stood and who lifted up their hands, lifting up their eyes, also bowed their heads and they worshiped. This is a sign of humility. We stand for the word and we open our hearts to receive it. But we also bow down in prayerful humility as the word exalts the God of the word. And it shows us our place in this world. The reason why Israel needed the word of God read was to understand that they were small, but God was big. God is big and we are small. 
And that's why we bow down before him, not simply uh, physically, but in a manner of speaking, in our hearts as well. To say it differently, the real goal here is to elevate not the preacher, right? Uh, But the one who sent the preacher. John Calvin, who again said that in order for us to truly know ourselves, we must know God. And that goes the opposite direction. In order for us to really know God, we need to know ourselves. What enables us to truly know ourselves and to know God? The Word of God. Israel had just come back. They needed to know who God was. Israel had just come back. They needed to know who they are. They stood for six hours being taught this is who God is and who we are before him. And we need those lessons week by week. This is why we come and sit under the ministry of God's word. It tells us who we are. It tells us who God is. And it even tells us our place in this world. It gives us a genuine sense of identity. It helps us to not fall in love with the wrong things and to stand for the right things. Our text really cultivates in many ways in verse 6, which is truly the crescendo. And I think uh, for some of you, if I'd missed it, you probably would have let me know about it, which is fine. But notice what happens in verse 6 as Ezra and the people of God exalt God together. It really is a beautiful verse. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. As Ezra read the word of God, he also blessed the God of the word. And what a great phrase that is, blessed be the Lord, the great God. It actually tells us what the real point of preaching is. Preaching is not simply a means of grace to God's people, though it certainly is that. Uh, Preaching foremost exists to bring glory to God. That's the goal. It's not chicken soup for the soul. It's not life's instruction manual. It's not uh, 30 minutes a week where a life coach micromanages your budget. Preaching exists to elevate God above his people by elevating the word of God above his people. It makes us small and it makes God big. That's the point of preaching. Blessed be the Lord, the great God. Preaching is, to use a big word, doxological. It is a means to the end of lifting up the God who gave us his word, who saves his people, and is not Ezra and the 13 who stand above the people of God is clearly the word of God. And and this, beloved, is the reason why pulpits are elevated. It's not to show off the person standing there or to draw attention to him. But in many ways, the opposite. The real hope of every preacher is that he would disappear, but the one who sent him would be glorious in the sight of God's people. It might also be worth pointing out, and perhaps this is just an addition, uh, but this little tower... This pulpit that they built in Nehemiah chapter 8, what do you think about that? On the one hand, it is a beautiful spot. From there, the word of God was proclaimed to the people of God. The man of God with the word of God to the people of God. How beautiful that must be to the people of God. How beautiful that should be for you and me. But then there's another sense in which uh, if when you pause and you think about it, uh, it's also dangerous territory. Ezra got weak, and Ezra needed help. 
The people of God needed the word of God, but Ezra could not do it alone. Let's say it a little differently. Who loves the ministry of God's word the most? The answer, God does. Who hates the ministry of God's word the most? The answer, his enemies. Satan. Those in the world that oppose the word of God. Isn't it interesting how much is said about the word of God all over the God that for some it is the aroma of life, for others it is the aroma of death. For some it gives life and it lifts up others, it tears down, it confounds and convicts. Satan hates the ministry of the word of God for the very same reason that God and his people love it. Because the word of God convinces and converts sinners and that's taking over Satan's territory. That's rescuing captives that are bound up in dark slavery. Satan hates the word of God because it penetrates hearts and it transforms lives and therefore he resists it with all his being, all his power, all his energy. This is why God loves his word and this is also why Jesus came into the world because it has never been enough in history for the word of God simply to be spoken. If a right understanding of preaching is not only understanding it, but obeying it. Here's the grand problem. Israel could stand there for six hours long and still not perfectly obey. And what would have happened if he added six hours more? Would that have enhanced their obedience? Let's make it 24 hours. Let's keep them there for a week straight. No one goes home. You can perhaps see the problem. It's never been enough that God's word should be spoken. It was always the intention that God's word should be fulfilled. And that's why Jesus came into the world. The word of God had to be incarnate. The word of God had to be fulfilled. God desired for his word not simply to be proclaimed, but also to be practiced and that perfectly. And nobody did it better than Jesus. Nobody did it other than Jesus. Nobody did it so perfectly except Jesus. And this is why Satan doesn't simply hate the word of God in book form or proclaim but the word of God in the flesh. But do you see the irony? Do you see the irony? God loves his word and the world hates it. This is why Israel needed to hear it. Because they were in the world, but not to be of the world. They were back from exile, and yet already temptations were beginning to abound. Cracks in their spirituality were already beginning to separate. God loves his word. The world hates it. God preserves his word. The world is always trying to tear it down. Yet one of the surest signs, beloved, that we belong to God is that we love his word. Not perfectly, but sincerely. So let me offer just a few closing thoughts. How do you respond to God's word? You laugh a little bit at the thought of standing to hear it read for six hours. But if you go back to Calvin for a moment, do you know why they kicked him out? They didn't like his preaching. They didn't like what he had to say. The city council at Geneva voted not with their feet, but with Calvin's. And they ousted him. But they later repented and came back. Uh, Many of us, it's quite arguable, perhaps we should say, all of us do indeed have too low a view of the word. And sometimes uh, we vote that with our feet by becoming impatient. It's almost a little bit sad, the number of commentaries that are on the practical side that reflecting on Nehemiah, excuse me, yeah, Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, tell stories of people getting up and walking out of church when the hand stood straight up at noon. 
And if you've ever been a preacher in a church where people are so bound to how long the sermon is, so fixated on the number of minutes, you know that can be a little disappointing. And on the flip side, to be very encouraging, uh, what a joy it is, what a joy it is to proclaim the word to people who might not be willing to stand six hours for it, but who genuinely love it. The people of God gathered together as one man. They were united. The fact that they were not gathered at the temple or even the outer courts of the temple uh, sounds a lot like Proverbs where uh, the word of God, like the voice of wisdom, stands here in the city streets, opens her voice at the city gates, speaking to all who pass by. To seek it is to seek life. To despise it and reject it is to court death. The voice of wisdom cries from the ministry of God's word. It calls to the young and to the old. It paints a beautiful picture, not simply of who our God is, but where we stand in the world. And as young and old gathered together on that day in Ezra 8, might that same picture continue in our church? A people who gather together, not to elevate the preacher, but the word of the living God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we do indeed thank you for your word. Before it we bow, even now, the majority of us have our heads somewhat facing down and our eyes are closed. We humble ourselves before you, even as we desire to lift up your holy name and your holy word. We also confess, O Lord, that often it is the case that we take too low a view of the ministry of your word. That is well embodied in our preparation for the ministry of your word or our lack thereof. And so we ask that you would spur our hearts on to maturity, that you'd help us to recognize that just as Israel might have needed rest and even had a good occasion to ask for it, what they needed even more was to gather together around your word. In fact, they did so as one man standing for hours from morning till midday. It says a lot about what the heart of the people of God ought to look like. So help us to rightly elevate your word. Help us to recognize that the primary purpose of preaching is to elevate the word of God, and particularly Jesus himself who came into this world to incarnate the word of God, who suffered all of its curses and threatenings upon the cross, and who was raised triumphantly even according to the word of God. And as that life-giving spirit continues to convince and convert sinners through the ministry of the word, we ask, Lord, that you continue to do that among us, and that you would be pleased, finally, to comfort us through faith unto salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.